After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to beherenownetwork.com/jack. It's so easy to get lost in the you know, whether it's the quotidian day-to-day things that we have to tend or in the problems and the crises that we face. But there's a bigger picture that's also absolutely critical, especially in this kind of divisive time. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. And I want to keep the teachings quite simple. They're more than anything just a reminder to you of something that you already know just as you can tune into the goodness of the world and of humanity in ways that don't come from the news. I think it was William Carlos Williams, the poet who said, you can't get the news from poetry, yet men and women die every day from lack of what is found there. And by poetry, he meant literally poetry, but he also meant the poetry of mystery and awe and seeing the beauty of the world that's not in the news. So here we are in these very uncertain times. And this was part of the central teachings of Ajahn Chah, my teacher in the forest monasteries of Thailand and Laos. When we would ask him questions or things were difficult. And remember, there were times of war there too, in the war in Laos, the war in Cambodia, the war in Vietnam, and the province and the monasteries where we live was on the border of Cambodia and Laos. And so we would see the bombers flying overhead. Sometimes from some of the monasteries, you could see flashes of lightning on the horizon. Um, and we would ask all kinds of questions about how to what would happen with the war and how we should act and so forth. And one of his most frequent responses would be to smile and say, it's uncertain, isn't it? He wouldn't give us an answer. He wanted us to rest in the mystery. With the election, with racial justice, with the pandemic, with all the things that we're facing, climate change. How are we gonna fix it? How will we get through it? It's uncertain, isn't it? He would smile and say. 
And so this is really an invitation to understand first equanimity, the first part of this teaching. And from the Dhammapada, the favorite verses recited from the Buddha for thousands of years, there are those who discover that they can leave behind destructive reactions and become patient as the earth, unmoved by the fires of anger or fear, unshaken as a pillar, unperturbed as a clear and quiet pool. And this was really his invitation. When people said, what are you doing about the war? That monastery had been there before and after the war, wars come and go. It was a place of peace to remind people that there was a bigger story than what human beings were doing at that time. To step out of the drama, to see with the eyes of wisdom. There's a story of the great Indian sage Ramakrishna. And Ramakrishna used to pray that he might have a vision of the Holy One, of the, of the goddess, of the mother, of the creator of this universe. You know, as a very deeply devoted practitioner, he would pray and pray and he sat by the river in, in Bengal and did his prayers, beseeching. And it said one day, asking for a vision of the divine, as he sat on the edge of the river, there arose out of the water the goddess herself this extraordinary being coming out of the river with illuminated eyes and an incredible body of, you can envision what a goddess looks like. I'll let it let you, you know, quite extraordinary. And his heart leapt, wow. You know, after these years of prayer and beseeching, the goddess shows herself to me. And she looked at him with such tenderness. And he thought, now I'll receive the teachings. And then she spread her legs open and out of her body, out of her vagina, she started to give birth to the world. And there were beings and trees and animals and humans, all of these pouring out of her body. And he saw the creative force of life itself come through the goddess. And he was, of course, you know, wildly moved and awakened. And here's the, the, the force of creativity that makes all things showing itself. And then she looked deeply in his eyes and reached down and picked up a couple of the babies that had been born and put them into her mouth and began to chew on them and blood ran down her chin. And his eyes got wide and he understood a really tough teaching that she who gives birth to the world, she who is the mother of the world, brings things into appearance for a time and then lets them go. And in case you haven't noticed, this is the mysterious nature of incarnation.
that it comes, it has beauty and creativity, and it also has the ending and destruction and death. And they can't be separated because they come from the same source, which is life itself. This last two weeks, Trudy and I rented an RV. We became two old people tripping around in an RV in the Southwest uh, to Zion and Bryce and the Grand Canyon and all these amazing sites to the Escalante and um, uh, great national parks, Capitol Reef, walking these amazing canyons. And out in the vast deserts, and at nighttime, because it was desert and we'd gotten away from the smoke from the fires, we could look up at the stars the way you can in clear air in the desert, far away. And the sky was just filled with stars. You know, you start to look up and there are all the familiar constellations, and then you get quiet and you look a little further and longer and get dark adapted. And then between the stars, you know, all the other stars, stars start to show themselves. And it's like there's this woven field of tiny little dots of stars. Of course, no one knows exactly, but some astronomers say there are 200 billion galaxies. And others say there's a trillion galaxies. I'll let you work that out. And of course, each galaxy has one or 200 billion stars. So that's 10 to the 24th, a septillion number of stars. And I remember as a kid, I've told this story. I used to go out on a dark night in the summer and lie in the grass and look at the stars as we do. But instead of looking up at the stars, I would pretend that I was on the bottom of the earth being held by the magnet of gravity against the earth so I wouldn't fall in, and that I was looking down into the sea of stars. It gave me a kind of those feelings you get when you're on some very high place, like, wow, look at that sea. But here we have our problems, right? Here we have our human difficulties, and we have. We've lived through pandemics and epidemics and earthquakes and floods and so forth. And I remember, <clears throat> I think it was Houston Smith who was in dialogue with the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama knew Houston Smith was a professor at MIT. And Houston described to the Dalai Lama the origin of the scientific, current scientific origin of the universe, the Big Bang, right? And he tried to describe it as well as he could. Now, talk about mystery. That's one that'll stop your mind. How could it all have been a singularity and then burst out from nothing into everything? Anyway, we won't go there. But he described it to the Dalai Lama, who was naturally very interested, and then said, Your Holiness, is there anything like this in the Buddhist cosmology? And the Dalai Lama got quiet and smiled and says, yes, mm, very much the same, except not just once, not just Big Bang, but mm, bang, bang, bang. Universes appear, beings appear, things arise and dance for a time, and then that eon and that universe disappears and it reappears again. 
the yugas, the Kali yuga, some say we're in this huge long view of life appearing and changing. And it's so helpful to have a big view, a long view for a peaceful heart. Because equanimity is not an indifference to the world. That's called the near enemy of equanimity. It masquerades as equanimity. But that's a weakness, withdrawal out of fear. Equanimity is the perfect balance, the openness to the dance of life, just as it is. As the Ojibwa say, and I've repeated this so many times, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And I know when I became a monk after having been raised mostly in American suburbs and going to high schools and college and things like that, there I was living in the forest, you know, in the wilds. And after some years, my mind got very quiet and I got familiar with the phases of the moon and the cycling of the stars and the days when the monsoon rains would come, you know, and then when they would stop and everything would be fresh and the green of the rice fields and the rhythms of life and the wild birds in the forest. And we used to have at one monastery, we would use these little sticks to tap the path at night because the bell to wake you up, to wake us up would be at 3 a.m. or 3.30 and we'd go gather to chant and you'd tap the path so that the cobras and the other snakes would feel you coming and they would get out of the way as you walked with a little candle in the dark or a little flashlight. But it was living in rhythms that are so much bigger than what the news cycle offers us and the kind of difficulties that we live through. And in all this, when we take our seat to meditate, as we just did with that beautiful practice of aligning yourself with goodness, you take your seat at the center of the universe, what T.S. Eliot called the still point of the turning world. And then it says in the Tao, there's a time for being ahead and a time for being behind a time for being in motion and a time for being at rest, a time for being vigorous and a time for being exhausted, a time for being in danger and a time for being safe. The wise one sees things as they are without controlling them. She lets them rise and fall and go their own way and resides in the center of the circle. So we become the loving witness. We become loving awareness, consciousness itself, which is who you really are. It's what was born into your body, your true nature. And you see and hold the dance of life with its ocean of tears and its unbearable beauty with a tender heart. Here's another image for you that I like very much. 
It's actually a poem from Donald Babcock. He writes, now we're ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf as he cuddles in the swells. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic and he is part of it. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is and neither do you, but he knows it somehow in his being. And what does he do? I ask you, he sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is true spiritual life. And the duck has it. How about you? We need this at this time. We need to find the still point. We are the duck. We are the center, the still point in the vast ocean. And we can see with the eyes of mystery and awe. And remember, we've been given the gift of consciousness and a heart that can know heartbreak and unshakable love, all of these things. And having a sense of vastness when you, you know, turn off the news and look at the stars. Watch the fog when it comes in in the morning or the clouds, the winds. Watch the turning of the leaves. Feel the cycles of life. And yes, we'll do what we need to do, but from a very different place. Now, this is the outer dimension of a peaceful heart. But there is another dimension that's also important to speak of beside vastness. And using Ramdas's phrase, which I have stolen and kind of changed in my own way, but I'll put it in dear Ramdas's words. He said, you need to remember your Buddha nature and your social security number. You need to remember your vastness, but you also have to remember the particulars, the minute particulars of this amazing incarnation, because as William Blake says, if good is to be done, it has to be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the flatterer, the politician, and the scoundrel. We won't go any further with that quote. I'll leave it to your own reflection. So when the Dalai Lama first came to the U.S., at the very end, I think it was 1979, He came to visit our center in Massachusetts, Insight Meditation Society, IMS, and Barry. And he also gave a lecture at Harvard University in Memorial Hall or one of these big halls. And it was a special endowed chair for the Department of, I guess it was a religion or something like that, a special endowed lecture in which the great masters of the world and scholars would come. And he got up there, it was his first time being at Harvard. And he gave a two or three hour lecture on Madhyamaka and on some of the most abstruse teachings of the school of Nagarjuna that deconstructs everything and then drawing on things from the Buddhist Abhidharma and so forth. 
And it was a fantastic talk. And I only understood about half of it. I mean, it was it was deep and amazing. And I actually had the feeling that he said, "Mm, "Okay, I'm at Harvard. I'm going to show these people we've got the goods, too. And he kind of opened the treasure chest of Tibetan Buddhism and said, you think, you know, philosophy and psychology. How about these thousands of years of this? And it was kind of extraordinary. And then at the end, he laughed as he did and smiled. And he said, well, you might not have understood all of that. Many of us nodded. He said, no matter really what matters, just remember compassion. And when you remember compassion, also remember karma. And that was it. That one sentence, remember compassion and karma. So I want to talk about this other dimension, not just your Buddha nature, but your social security number. And I really want to talk about it in terms of karma. Because when we have this vast view of equanimity, then there's the question, how do we act? Because we're always acting, we're breathing and moving and eating and speaking and relating in the midst of the vastness. And karma, a few little things to say. It says, nowhere in heaven or earth can one outrun the effects of karma. Because karma is the the law of cause and effect that governs the stars and the galaxies and the plants and the planets and human interaction. It's not the only law and it's not the one that covers absolutely everything, but it's one that's absolutely critical for us when we have a peaceful heart to understand then how to navigate. And the law of cause and effect is this simple. If you have an acorn and you plant it, you'll get an oak tree. If you have a mango seed and you plant it, you will get a mango tree. That the seeds that we plant become the causes. It's the law of cause and effect of causes and conditions. And you can find it in the physical world and in the psychological world and the spiritual world. Now, it's also true that it's become kind of a a popular word in English you know, I've got bad karma or he'll get his karma or things like that. And I, I remember reading some years ago that there was a, a, a group that probably doesn't exist anymore, or maybe it is online, um, that was advertising ways to help your karma. It was an organization in Burma. I'm sorry, in Burma, in Berkeley. And, and this organization in Berkeley started a a uh, process where you could sign up for what they called the next lifetime karmic guarantee. And their advertising went something like this. Let's face it. You may have some good karma, but you got a lot of bad karma in your life. It could be better. You could have been born royalty or rich or a fantastic athlete pretty much blown at this lifetime, let's be honest. But the game isn't over. If you want to have a wonderful life, send $19.99 to 
next lifetime reincarnation guaranteed. And we will send you a certificate that guarantees in the next lifetime. You can check off. Do you want royalty? Would you like to be a star athlete? You know, what is it that you want? I thought about doing it, actually, just for the fun of it. I wanted their certificate, put it on the wall at Spirit Rock. But that's kind of the way that karma is, you know, colloquially described. But it has a much more important meaning for us. And the key to karma for us as human beings, more than anything else, is intention. And so the way I like to describe it is that if somebody pulls their car out of their driveway and then crashes through the bushes of the neighbor's house next door and smashes into their living room, there are two kinds of karma that could be made. If that person who pulled out of the driveway in their car and then crashes into the neighbor's house did so because their accelerator stuck and they couldn't stop the car, there will be the lights, the sirens, the police, whatever, you know, the emergency vehicles, are you okay? Um, because it was an accident crashing into someone's house. Now that very same act, suppose that next door neighbor was really a problem for you and you hated him and you got so overwhelmed with anger after he cut down all those beautiful trees on your property line and, you know, shot at your dog or whatever that neighbor did and you were enraged and enraged one day, you pulled out of your driveway and you couldn't take it any further and the very same action, you at the wheel, the car crashing through the hedge or the fence into his house, absolutely the same thing from outside, watching it, you couldn't tell any difference. But the intention was different. You were angry. And the neighbor comes out and starts yelling at you and you yell back. And not only do the police come because they're worried, but then they take you away. And the difference in those two scenarios is so simple. It is intention. This is what makes karma come alive. The intention behind an act. And you can see it when you speak to another person. One of the best and most simple mindfulness practices, especially if you're upset, is to take a breath and a pause when you're upset before you speak or send that text or that email or something and ask yourself, what's my best intention? And usually as you ask yourself, what is my best intention? You get a little quiet for a few breaths. Underneath that upset or that anger or that pain or frustration, or whatever, you realize I want to solve this. I want this to work out somehow. I want to figure this out. Or even I love that person, even though I'm frustrated. And then your whole tone of voice changes because you sense your best intention, which is to make it work instead of being caught with that intention of getting back or being right or revenge. And that little shift of intention, you tune in, changes the tone of your voice and changes the response you'll get in so many ways. Karma 
In another way is the planting of seeds or the nourishing of them. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. The mind is like a piece of land planted with many different kinds of seeds, seeds of joy, of peace, of understanding, of mindfulness and love, seeds of craving, anger, fear, hate, and forgetfulness. These healthy and unhealthy seeds are always there in consciousness, sleeping in the soil of the mind. The quality of your life depends on the seeds you water. If you water a seed of peace in your mind and heart, peace will grow. When the seeds of happiness in you are watered, you become happy. When the seed of anger in you is watered, you'll become angry. The seeds that are watered frequently are those that grow strong. So this is the garden of the heart. But it turns out that with our words and our action, we can pay attention, mindfully loving awareness, and notice what seeds are we planting. In the vastness of the cosmos, you are given the garden of life to plant certain seeds. And what seeds will you plant? I remember the story of, I don't know, maybe it was a decade or so ago, the BBC did a special program on the siege of Leningrad. And Leningrad in the Second World War was under siege for three years by the German army through terrible winters, terrible cold winters. Um, and, and, you know, thousands and thousands of people died. And this was the story as they began to interview some of the older people who'd been part of that time. And the one that I remember was an old woman who described how she had been a young child during the siege of Leningrad, when so many people were hungry and so many people got sick. And she said her mother sent her down to get their weekly ration of bread. And she went out in the kind of icy rain and went to the shop and picked up their family ration of bread. And as she walked out of the shop, she slid on the ice and fell into a mud puddle and the bread she carried fell into the muddy water and got ruined. And she was picking herself up and weeping and another woman who walked out right after her, walked over to her as a little girl, helped her get up and broke the piece of bread that she'd been given in half and said, here, this is for you and your family. And then this woman being interviewed by the BBC said, come with me and led the camera down through the railroad apartment to the kitchen at the end and opened a cupboard where there was a porcelain bowl and opened the top of the bowl and wrapped in a blue napkin, she said, here. And there was a little bit of that piece of bread that she'd saved for 60 years. And she said, that bread that was given to me by that woman to our family, she said it was that spirit that got me through the war, that got me through all of that time. So don't think that the seeds that you plant won't make a difference. With equanimity, with a peaceful heart and a vast mind, 
then you water the seeds that matter. You plant beautiful things. You tend to things. And you can't know the results, like voting. You know, I've been working on projects. One of them is to try to get all the yoga teachers and meditation teachers that I know of across the country to engage their students in getting out the vote. There's 10 million, 20 million people who practice yoga and five or 10 million people who practice meditation. So we've been doing this stuff online, but actually every vote counts. Every single vote counts and every vote matters. Let me read you another story. Where is that book? There. Here. Oh, here it is. Right in front of me. That's the way things are, you know. It's right on top of the computer. And I didn't look in the most obvious place. So here's the story for you. Tell me the weight of a snowflake. A snow sparrow asked a wild dove. Nothing more than nothing was the answer. In that case, I must tell you a marvelous story, said the snow sparrow. I sat on a branch of a fir close to its trunk when it began to snow. Not heavily, not in a giant blizzard. No, just like in a dream, without any violence. Since I didn't have anything better to do, I counted the snowflakes settling on the twigs and needles of my branch. Their number was exactly 3,741,952. When the next snowflake dropped onto the branch, nothing more than nothing, as you say, the branch broke off. And having said that, the snow sparrow flew away and the dove, since Noah's time and authority on change, thought about the story for a while and finally said to herself, perhaps there's only one person's voice lacking for peace to come about in this world. Karma, we get to plant seeds in this mystery, whether it's the seeds of voting or the seeds of tending to one another or so many other things that we might do. And in that sense, it's really important to remember that mindfulness is not passive. That mindfulness has two parts to it. Sati Sampajanya, it means mindful presence and mindful response. And we each find our way to water the seeds, to tend this earth, sometimes in the littlest acts, and sometimes in really powerful ones. There are stories of how the Buddha, seeing that there was going to be warfare in the kingdoms, the Sakya kingdom of his own parents, and the kingdom of Kosala and Magadha and the various kings, Pasanadi and others, who were making war on one another and conquering one another. And he knew that there was a big battle about to happen. And he went out and sat in the middle of the road very peacefully as the warring army came. And the king at the head of the army knew the Buddha and stopped and spoke with him. And the Buddha said, my heart burns 
my eyes water with tears for the destruction that will happen. And the king, seeing the Buddha's compassion, turned around. That's a very nice story that the Buddha was able to do that. But there's a sequel to it that has another important teaching because you know how kings and politicians can be. Politics being as it is a kind of ritualized warfare. Again, the kings were about to fight and another army was coming, a king that the Buddha knew. And he went out to try to sit there to make peace in this area where so many people looked up to him. And the king who came along said, oh, you again. He said, this is really something I have to do. Get out of the way. Move the Buddha out of the way. And the Buddha failed. And the war went on and many people were killed and destroyed. So there's a secret in this. And this is the secret that's written in so many sacred texts. Now you get it tonight for whatever you paid, which is mostly your good-hearted attention. And the secret is this. To act well, to plant seeds of goodness, to act well without, atten- without attachment to the fruit of those actions. Because it's not up to you to decide whether the seed will sprout or how long it will take or what it will do. You don't get to choose that. What you get is to plant beautiful seeds. And sometimes you plant the seeds of a redwood or sequoia and you won't see it grow much in your lifetime, but someone else will. This is the passage from Thomas Merton I read so often that describes it well. Writing to a young and frustrated activist, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps at times results opposite to what you planned and expected. As you get used to this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. The word compassion in Pali or Sanskrit is also um, is also written or spoken with a parallel word that's called to shape. That when we act, whether you call it nourishing or planting seeds, we begin to shape the future step by step, moment by moment, depending on our intention and our actions. And don't think that even little things can't make a difference. I think of my friends who started this anti-genocide organization, a very small one, but mighty in its own way called IACT, I-A-C-T, that's been working in refugee camps with the Darfur refugees for a decade, those who fled the hundreds of thousands to villages were burned and working with refugees in Syria and many, many other places around the world. And what they do is they went and they sat with the refugees. They mostly sit with the women and say, we want to listen to you. 
We want to hear your stories. And then we want to know what it is that you most want. Mostly the NGOs and the big international aid organizations come in and they have their ideas and their food and they set up camp and they do their things. But this is the opposite. This is trust philanthropy. This is listening to those who are on the ground and saying, well, how can we empower you? How can we support you? What do you want if you are in charge? And it turned out, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, that the women said, we want two things. We want soccer and we want kindergarten. Surprising. They said, we want soccer because we want our children to know that they're part of a larger world. After 12 years in the camp and trekking from Darfur where our villages were burned and half our families were killed, we want them to know that there's something more than this desolate camp. And we want kindergarten so that our littlest ones can realize that they can learn. So they set up these ponds, they call them of little schools, little ripple ponds for the for the kindergartners to begin to understand that they could learn, starting to set up a school system. And they brought soccer balls and a coach. And gradually in the last years, they built a team called Darfur United. And of the best players that started to play barefoot with these soccer balls on these desolate camps in the desert, they created raised enough money to go to the international football soccer tournament that FIFA and the international organization allows for the non-aligned, those who don't come with a passport, those who aren't representing a particular country, but that are representing a people. And this group were flown first to the games in Macedonia, people who, who were mostly barefoot their whole life. They got soccer shoes. They stayed in a hotel. They rode an airplane. They were just totally astonished. And their goal, their desire in the playoffs was just to make one goal. And they played a series of games and they mostly lost. And on their last game, playing against quite a good team, one of their players got the ball and rushed down the field, got around some others and made a goal. And the team just erupted in joy and tears. And when they went back, everybody wept. There is so much goodness in the world. We are tied, as Martin Luther King says, in a single garment of destiny, all of us together. And the acts that you do, the vote that you vote, the people that you speak with, with a good-hearted intention, the care that you bring to the world, you are watering the seeds that create our future. Can we destroy? Yes, as human beings. Can we rebuild? Also, yes. As Mahatma Gandhi has said, when I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. Yes, there have been murderers, and tyrants, and for a time they seem invincible, but in the end, they always fall. Think of it, always. And we align ourselves from the vastness of our heart 
trusting the unfolding, we plant the seeds of goodness. Others will hoard, I will help, says the Buddha. Others will deceive, I will stand up for truth, says the Buddha. Others will be uncaring and overwhelmed, I will be kind and respectful. Thus we should incline the heart, thus we should intend. In this vast dance, this mystery of life, here we are a week before the US election, more or less, so much divisiveness. Let your heart be a zone of peace. Yes, there's great suffering and we can tend to it and try to alleviate it, but align yourself with the billions of acts of goodness. So much goodness on this earth with mercy and awe and beauty. Henry David Thoreau says, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there and I'm prepared to expect wonders. These teachings are very simple tonight. Vastness, equanimity, awe, the perspective of the universe unfolding. It's not given to you to determine. It's so amazing to just step out and look at the stars, to feel yourself a part of this web of life. Carried by it, the web of goodness. And then to offer that goodness in your seeds, in your best intention, in what you plant, and to trust.